It had to be you. Is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. Hello, romantics. Welcome to a pod to be you, the Talk Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mathur. In each episode, I'll be chatting with a guest about a, a romantic comedy from classics to modern hits. My guest today is Danny Bowes. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Really excited to have you on the show and to talk about this film. Would you like to introduce the movie, the movie we're talking about today? Uh, yeah, it was a movie that I had not seen before because I figured, you know, just, uh, you know, take, take a leap into the unknown. So we uh, watched uh, 27 Dresses, uh, the uh, 2008 uh, Catherine Heigl vehicle. Uh, directed by Anne Fletcher, written by Aline Brush McKenna, who wrote The Devil Wears Prada, and uh, co-starring uh, James Marsden and uh, Judy Greer and Malin Ackerman and Edward Burns and a few other people. And uh, a movie that I was surprised to discover was uh, kind of received and uh, like got a lukewarm reception upon its release because it seemed like the very essence of like mainstream popular successful stuff, uh, which, you know, I say, you know, not as, uh, you know, in, in as pejorative a way as that sounds, but it was like, it was kind of like, oh, I thought that this was the the pop romantic comedy kind of thing that, you know, that people liked is it, it just, it seemed like every frame of it seemed to be that thing. Um, and I have to admit that I was a, a, a little, you know, had a mild trepidation about it beforehand, uh, but ended up being charmed by it. You know, I, I think in the way that it's this kind of film is intended, uh, to, to hit, you know, it's like, it's, you're supposed to be charmed and beguiled and entertained by it and, you know, like not, you know, so it's like, it, it, it did the job, you know, and, yeah. uh, yeah, it's like, it's, uh, you know, it's, they, they should make these more of these movies. You know, it's <laughs> like, I don't know why they don't anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember when this movie, I uh, came out, I was in college and, um, like, you know, it's funny you say it had a lukewarm reception and I think, yeah, critically, I don't think it fared very well. I had, and I don't remember what the box office was, but like, this is. This, I think it was successful at the box office. Yeah, like I, think, I, yeah. I, I feel like this is one of those movies that, um, like, just became a staple on like cable television. You know, like on mm-hmm. like TBS or like ABC Family Freeform or, you know, HBO and like because I remember it playing a lot and like, you wow. know, I tweeted about watching this movie yesterday and like people like were in my mentions saying, "Oh, this is my favorite movie. I love this movie," and like. Um, I actually ended up doing like a lot more research on this movie than I normally do, and like <laughs> in in some circles, this is this is that sort of like pop classic, and I think it's just because okay. like it hits on things that I think a lot of you know women in particular deal with, you know, the wedding industry and 
you know, like sisterly thing, like the sister relationships and, um, you know, and I was reading about like the making of the movie, which I found a very interesting process. And, um, yeah. And like, I, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. It's one of those, one of those movies that I would like catch here and there on TV, but like, I never sat down to like fully watch it, like, and like actually pay attention to it. And I found myself pretty like, uh, yeah, like entertained by it. I thought it was really well done. And, um, I actually found like, to me, it's like my favorite kind of romantic comedy where it's like the romance kind of takes a backseat to like, you know, the main character's like arc. And I found that like, you know, like it's not like, um, like, I feel like romantic comedies always have that you know, reputation of being like, oh, it's oh, it's about, like, you know, oh, it's always about a woman who's, like, obsessed with finding a man and, like... But I feel like with this movie and, like, a lot of others like it, it's, like, her... She kind of has to find this, like, personal, like, fulfillment. Um, and then, like, as a bonus, she, you know, she can find the love of her life. And, um, yeah, so what what's your familiarity with the film star Katherine Heigl? As a as an actress, movie star, persona, things like that. Um, it was it, it was interesting, you know, like doing the prep for this, you know, and going back and looking at what movies she'd been in, and you know, just going over her filmography. I was like, she's made a lot fewer movies than I thought that she had, because there was a time like, and it was like right around the time that this movie came out, where it's like she was at the center of popular culture. I mean, because it was a uh, you know, she's on, you know, Grey's Anatomy was such a huge hit initially in those first few seasons. And she was so uh, such a like an like I never watched the show, but I mean, she was, you know, like a very essential element of what made that show so popular. And then when she branched out into movies, it really seemed like she was like really at the, you know, the the nerve center of a particular type of popular culture for a while. And I was always really mystified by how negative people were about her. There was something about her that seemed to really, really piss people off and really rub people the wrong way. And I never understood that. And I ended up devoting a bit more thought to that than I ordinarily would just because it was so weird to me. It's like, why is everybody hate like this, you know, like, popular star of popular romantic comedies and i think it was like her candor about working on knocked up yeah just permanently lost a whole bunch of people for kind of not gonna bullshit you kind of sinister reasons you know because it's like it really seemed that it was solely because like Oh, the, you know, the girl was, you know, like opening her big mouth about girl stuff and, you know, like complaining about boys and like wanting money and like wanting recognition. It's like she should be humble. She should be, you know, like, you know, submissive and she shouldn't Mm -hmm. be so like, you know, headstrong and after that shit. So I was just like by default, like on her side. Yeah. Even though, as I ultimately realized, I was like, fuck, I've only seen like two movies that she's been in. Yet I was always getting any, you know, like, you know, drunken party conversations. Somebody would be like, ah, she's that bitch. And I'd just be like, no, fuck you. You know, like, that's, you're just, you're just being, a, you're being ridiculous talking about, it's like, what is it that you just like? And it's like, oh, I don't know. And it's like, I mean, you know, at this point, it's just like, come on, you just be being ridiculous about this. But it's like those kinds of irrationally held pop culture opinions are often 
like utterly and completely like imperturbable and just like in you know just like immovable to any kind of like you know logical persuasion otherwise that you know it's like you know or to put it in a more simple and less rambly way it's like your dumbest takes are the ones that stick the hardest yeah so this thing just pervaded it's like oh she's a bitch and it's like no i mean it just really seemed like she was just like yeah i'm a star because she was you know yeah it wasn't like she was like you know too big for her britches it was like no it was the fucking glass slipper you know like it fit just right like she was that star for like a little while and then there was things like i remember there was this piece in um in, in grantland that like it must be like 10 years ago now or not that long ago but like at least six or seven years ago where it was like they just like pulled their whole staff it's like why do people hate and and it's like 20 different people in this article is like oh ah, uh, uh, you know and there was only like yeah. one or two people in the thing where it's like oh, i actually like her and it was like of course their resident hot take person or whatever and the details i could have the details on because it was so long ago but it was like even at that point people were already completely writing her off and like you know talking about her being universally hated which was really weird to me because she's like a really charming and charismatic performer with the perfect touch for this kind of movie who doesn't just coast like she stretches uh, herself and like in this movie in particular you can tell that it is you know it's not just you know oh like you know like effortless or natural or she's just playing herself in playing this kind of self-denying character who's like shutting herself off from her own desires because, I mean, she always gave off the vibe, you know, as herself, you know, like as somebody who's like, oh, no, I know what I want and I and I'm going to go get it. And so it's like it's a stretch playing this character who subsumes her own desires, you know, in service of everybody else's, you know, so it's like seeing somebody doing actual work and yet still projecting that kind of like star power charisma. It's like this was a legit movie star that we just let go fl- slip through our fingers, you know? Yeah. I mean, like I, th- you know, um, K- yeah. Catherine Heigl, I think is a very fascinating case study in like, you know, the like balancing act that like women have to do in or- as they become more unsuccessful. And I think, you mm. know, we see someone like in Hathaway who similarly got kind of, and Jennifer Lawrence, who similarly like basically had to go into hiding for a while, you know, just because like the public just got sick of them for whatever reason after propping them up as like the next big thing. And, you know, with Catherine Heigl, like, you know, she made the, like, I think like the first sort of nail in the coffin was her comments about knocked up, you know, saying that it was like a sexist movie and whatever. And I think if she had made those comments in, you know, 2017 through now, she probably would have, it would have been received much differently because I think we're a little bit more aware of, you know, what it means for, like, movies to be sexist. I think, especially mm-hmm. in, like, right after Knocked Up came out when, like, Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen and all those guys were, like, you know, um, like, king of the hill. You know, I think, like, criticizing them with that kind of, like, hot take, quote-unquote, like, just, you know, yeah, it harmed her career. And then, like... You know, there was a whole thing with, like, Grey's Anatomy where she said that she, like, didn't want to submit herself um, for the Emmys because she felt like the material wasn't up to her level, which, I mean, it's the kind of thing where I think people are like, again, you're being ungrateful to the hand that fed you, but 
I'm kind of like, well, she didn't, you know, she didn't feel like the materials not up to her level. Then, like, that's that. I mean, it's not like Grey's Anatomy is like, you know, like high television, right? Like, it's. I mean, like sure, a, but know, I mean, it it is Shonda, but it isn't like you know, Shonda progressed beyond that. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then, and then also like, you know, she decided, you know, to become like the next rom-com heroine in the reign, in like the style of like a Julia Roberts and Meg Ryan, unfortunately at a time when like romantic comedies were on the downswing and like, they were still being made in like the mid two thousands, but like it was so rare for romantic comedy to get good reviews and to get like the kind of, you know, public like reception that they would now that they do now or they did in like the 90s and i think that like that was sort of the high time when it was like oh like girls love this movie because they can like watch it you know on tv or whatever or at sleepovers but like you know it's not it's not like a real cinema right and so she got like and then like the movies that she made so like the yeah the, the movies that she made in this time there's like five of them that pretty much like all kind of like blur together. And like unfortunately they all still played into that like um character type that you were mentioning that like you know knows what she wants kind of like in, in some ways like shrewish like kind of naggy like characters. So it's like stuff like The Ugly Truth, you know, Killers Life as you know it, one for the money, the big wedding, like all these movies that just kind of like blur together, and like they didn't really do much to help her public image because people were like, "Well, why are you taking on a role of this like of these like shrewish kind of harpy type characters when that was your main thing about Knocked Up is that you didn't want to play that, but like now you're you're like producing movies with this is your character." And, like, she kind of went into hiding for a while after that. I think she kind of reemerged uh, a couple of years ago when she did um, this movie, uh, Unforgettable, with Rosario Dawson. It's kind of like a oh, yeah. fatal attraction-type erotic thriller. And, like, I've seen that movie, and, like, she's, like, pretty good in it. Because, like, she's really, like... It's like she's leaning into that, like harpy shrew type character and like making it into the like camp villain which is like i think if she wants to play that kind of role and i think she's like good at it then like uh, that's the way to do it is just like be a villain like be like an antagonist oh yeah the Um, the problem with that movie was that like everybody's heart was in the right place yeah and everybody had the right idea going in and like on paper because i remember when i first saw the first trailer for that i was like Hell yes. I yeah, am right. all the way in. <laughs> Immediately give me this movie. It's like, yeah, Catherine Heigl's playing the evil white woman and it was it was uh was Rosario Dawson. Yeah, it was? yeah. It was like, yeah, and like, you know, the it's like the all American every woman Rosario Dawson has to face the, you know, the evil blonde villain is Catherine Heigl. And it's like, yes. And then you see the movie and it's like, oh, it, man, wasn't it was like so like PG thirteen, yeah, like half assed, yeah. just like it didn't have the courage of its own right. convictions to like lean into just being like the kind of insane sleazy thriller that it like that yeah, would have just like yeah. transported us all to gay heaven, you know. Right. But <laughs> it's like, yeah. but like going back to like twenty seven dresses, like I wouldn't, I like, I would not count that as like one of her bad romantic comedies. I, like I like. I agree that I think her performance here is, like, so different than, like, what I thought it would be. Like, she's so, like, I don't want to say she's, like, mousy, but she's just, like, 
so like she's like such a doormat and like i like that this movie is all about like emotional labor and just like people just like expecting this like woman to like do everything and when i was reading about the making of the film um Aline Brosh McKenna was saying that like this movie is kind of based on someone that she knew in real life who was just like perpetual mm-hmm. bridesmaid, just like would just say yes to everything and put everyone else first. And I think that woman in real life had done twelve weddings, not twenty seven. Well, <laughs> but, but I mean, like, you gotta heighten it a little bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, exactly, but it's I mean, twelve weddings. Like, I mean, that's crazy. that's still a lot. That's yeah, still a yeah. lot. Yeah. Yeah. And. Um, and like McKenna had uh, like envisioned this movie to be like a more like dramedy, like coming of age, and like she kind of she like wrote the draft and like submitted it around, like it didn't really get bought. And the, one of the producers, I believe it was uh, Jonathan Glickman, he said that um, this movie would work, but like it needs to fit into that like you know the like rom com conventions, like the rom com template. So, like, McKenna then, like, left the project. It kind of got rewritten here and there. And then she came back after The Devil Wears Prada. And, like, I think that's when she was like, okay, like, I'm ready to, like, make this into, like, a studio romantic comedy. And then I think, like, as she was, like, rewriting it for this, you know, once it was, like, kind of greenlit officially on the go, then she sort of realized that, like, okay, yeah, it's meant to be this, like, romantic comedy. And I think, I mean, I would be interested to see, like, a more, like, serious, less rom-com version of this. But I think it works pretty well in the sort of like, conventional romantic comedy, um, like, treatment. It it definitely does work in, in that context. But it also, the, there were numerous points in the movie watching it. And me being, you know, like a bit of an outsider in the you know, genre, as previously, you know, uh, sort of caveated, um, I kept I, I noticed like it, 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 like significant intrusion of romantic comedy stuff, like at a lot of junctures in the movie. Like there's no point in the whole movie where. Uh, a moment or an emotional beat is allowed to just like sit in silence for a second or two, just like sit quietly and like let stuff sink in. It's like, it's almost like a, like a, like a pit crew for a racing team, like runs in with romantic comedy genre armaments that they like, you know, tune up the movie with in all of those quiet beats. Like here's a, a, like a music cue because it's been a tenth of a second of silence. So here's here's a music cue to cue you into the exact mood that Catherine Heigl is feeling right now. It's like okay, all right, all right. You you know that she's contemplative because of this music cue, right? Okay, cool. No, okay, we don't have to worry about pe- that uh, that moment suffering, a moment's ambiguity. Like, all right, let's move on to the next thing. And it's just like that kind of uh, like uh, freneticness on a craft level, which n- never reached the point where it was like you know irritating or off putting. Yeah. But it was like it was like a very caffeinated movie in ter- in craft terms because it was like it was like sitting down with somebody who's just had like six espressos and they're just like at you and like without a moment's a down you know like a, a down moment or a moment of silence at all it was just like it, it just keeps up you know keeps it moving and uh you know and it's like. It's there's you know there's nothing wrong with that because I mean that's the genre that's that's the game that's the business that's that's what it is it's like you know it's meant to entertain it's meant to never bore 
But like you said, it would have been interesting to see a take on this material where there are like moments of like, you know, slow interiority permitted or, you know, you, you know, like scenes where maybe something isn't happening and that's the point, you know, kind of like uh, quietness. I don't know. Yeah. Like it, 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 it sounds like I'm complaining. It's just, but it's all I'm doing is observing, but it was like, it was very just like, all right, all right, all right, here we go. 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 You know? And it's like, that's good. If you're like falling asleep or if you have like really short attention span. Um, and it's like, they, they are making a piece of pop cinema here. It's not like, you know, you know, it's it's not going to be like a you know a fucking you know like Bergman moments of you know like you know painful interiority. You know, it's like right, right. It's like you know, it's it's a movie by the director of Step Up and the writer of The Devil Wears Prada. It's like you know, it's like no, we're making a mainstream pop movie. You know, yeah, and then I mean, I guess like I'm like I guess maybe because I watched these movies so much that like I still felt that interiority in this movie and I felt it more than oh, I sure. like, yeah. probably thought that I would have um and like I mean I definitely felt that you know this movie I mean like it's so it's so not surprising that this is the same writer as Devil Wars Prada I mean they're so similar in a lot of ways um if only because I think they you know you, I think, in some ways, because they use that sort of mainstream aesthetic to talk about like these very like feminine relationships and like feminine like character traits that you know, and like this very like arc that's like I think I mean I would I don't think you could I don't think I've ever seen a movie like like with this kind of story about men, and I think it's just because like. No. I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's the kind it of thing be- where it's like I'm sure it exists, right? But like. Um, I like, and I I feel like with like the Devil Wears Prada and this movie, like I think they both like, like I think Twenty Seven Dresses is much more Amanda comedy. I mean, the Devil Wears Prada is not Amanda comedy. Like I would not call it that, uh, just because yeah. there's like no romance in that movie. But like I think but like, it they is, both it is adjacent. Yeah, yeah, and formally, and its concerns are adjacent, even though, yeah, it's not a rom a romance centered movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, I really felt like in Twenty Seven Dresses, like the relationship between Catherine Heigl and Malin Ackerman, like, really struck stuck out to me this time watching it, and like, I when I saw this movie, like, I guess I must have seen it like a decade or so ago, like. I don't like. I felt like I didn't remember that like the sister uh, plotline was like the main story of the movie. Like, because you know you remember like James Marsden because he's so charming. Like you remember them like doing the gift registry and the Benny the Jet mm-hmm. scene. Like that's like the one of the classic scenes of the movie. And um, you remember like you know them hooking up in the car and stuff. But like there was so much stuff with the sister and. Um, like, it just, like, it's so, like, it reminded me so much of, like, you know, a, a movie like Sense and Sensibility, you know, the, the Ang Lee movie. Because, like, you have, like, you know, one sister who's kind of flighty, one sister who's, like, the mature one. And, like, how they kind of clash and have to, like, become more like each other is, you know, like, I mean, it, that's sort of the, that's sort of their arc as sisters. And, 
And like I remember like the scene at the rehearsal dinner when she like does that slideshow. Like I remember that being like a cheer moment, <laughs> right? Like for some reason in my mind I had this uh, this like okay, this like when I was watching it last night, I was like, Okay, yeah, this is gonna be like the iconic, you know, movie where like she, you know, like um stands it's up to her revenge. sister and you're like, yeah. Yes, you know. And then I'm watching it and I'm like, Wow, this is like so that much more serious than I up. thought. <laughs> That scene is really fucked up. There is so much pathos in that scene. Yeah. And it's like, I think one key thing at play here, and I think one of the reasons why this movie succeeds where a lot of, um, you know, movies of a similar type kind of, you know, don't really hit as hard is that I think having a woman writer and a woman director on this particular movie allows for like more of an honest examination of the pathos in those relationships especially the really the main one as you pointed out between the sisters is that it's like you know not to you know like you know be a, a traitor to the people over here but you know like a lot of you know like gay and queer men when they try and write that kind of material it's all like you know snappy and bitchy and you yeah, know like yeah. it, and and sort of like superficially breezy and that scene is written as a thing where it's building t- for the audience to cheer for Catherine Heigl and like you know boom Ellen Ackerman whereas McKenna like is like nah this scene's fucked up like, yeah and it's scene, like yeah nobody's happy at the end of this scene yeah Heigl feels like shit Ackerman feels like shit Edward Burns is like what's going on here oh it's, yeah, it's women over here it's, just, <laughs> it's woman stuff I don't understand this you know um, it's like nobody is happy at the end of that scene and that makes it so much more effective to me than in like a you know say like parallel universe movie uh, a version of this that like you know the guy who created Sex in the City like would have written for oh, like geez, that show yeah. where it's just like where you just be like, yes, queen, you decimated that bitch and made her want to slit her wrist. And it's like, yeah, that's not cool. You know, it's like, it's like yeah. fucking somebody's entire world up like that isn't cool. Yeah. And like, I mean, I yeah. really appreciate yeah, Like the, the, I really appreciate that it was like treated with pathos. Like, cause I feel like, mm-hmm. like you were saying, there's all this parallel universe version of this movie. It's like, that movie's played for laughs. It's played for that, like, for you to, like, kind of, like, raise your fists in the air and be like, yeah, like, get her. But then, like, you know, but then, like, us as, like, normal, rational people are like, this movie is, like, so messed up. Like, the characters are all messed up that we're supposed to, like, cheer for them, like, tearing each other down. But, yeah, in this movie, like, she has this line that she's like, I just destroyed my life. And, you know, it's like, wow, like, yeah, like, they're really taking this seriously. And, like, the conversation that the sisters have, like, in the hardware shop, like, that their father owns, like, the next, I guess maybe not the next day, but, like, in the next couple of days, like, I mean, it's planned, like, there's some of the comedy there because they're, like, throwing stuff at each other, but they, like, really hash out, like, you know, decades of, oh yeah, <laughs> like, family resentment and stuff, and it's just, like, yeah, and you're absolutely right that it definitely has the influence of, you know, the, the female director, Anne Fletcher, and, and the writer, and I, I was reading that um, Anne Fletcher says that, like, she's the most, like, Katherine Heigl in this movie. Because, like, um, McKenna was saying that like, she's not like that at all. Like, she's more like the Mullen Ackerman character. And then Anne Fletcher is more like the Katherine Heigl character. And so, like, 
they each sort of brought go, that yeah. like level of like relatability to this movie. And I think that's why like this movie really resonates with audiences. Like maybe the, not the people who are like rating on uh, rating it on Letterbox Rotten Tomatoes, but because of course I checked the Letterbox and like the front page is all like one star, two star reviews, and I had to like roll uh, eyes. Well, I mean, uh-huh. that's, a, that's a part that that's a problem with just film criticism in general yeah. is that the thing about genre film is that you're rating a, a genre film in comparison to other films in that genre. You're not judging it by uh, films that have nothing to do with that milieu and that work. Right. And it's like and this is like even assuming that you have to compare art against other art at all, which is not something that I consider to be a settled question by any means, Mm -hmm. but it's like a movie like this, your points of comparison are other movies like this. It's other movies that are working within these modes and working to accomplish these specific goals and movies that are pitched to this specific audience. You know, it's like, you don't, you know, it's like, you know, it's like you're not supposed to, you know, it's like take a movie like this and like, you know, put it up against like Jane Austen, even though it's like there are some similarities in the concerns. But it's like this isn't high literature. This is a machine that whose purpose is to, you know, like entertain like this particular demographic of people, you know, as a piece of just like, you know, pop entertainment. You know, it's not high art and it's not like a war movie and it's not a serious drama and it's not something whose concerns are because the thing, you know, there there are moments in the movie where you're watching it and you're like, man, if I were to seriously ponder this one little kind of throwaway moment for too long, the extrapolations would be really disturbing. But the thing that you have to understand is those little kind of like throwaway bumps in the road where you're just like, wait, what the fuck? This person is a sociopath. It's like, (laughs) yeah, in real life. But in this milieu, it's like, yeah, no, of course, the, you know, like the boyfriend, uh, you know, like psychopathically kind of throws in uh, Catherine Heigl under the bus for the sake of his career as the wedding columnist in the New York Observer, you know. It's like, yeah, because that's what people in that movie do. I mean, if somebody did that to you in real life, I mean, you know, like, good God, you know, but <laughs> it's a rom-com. Rom-coms I mean, real to life. to be fair, he you did know? try yeah. to delay the article. No, um, once he realized yeah. what he'd done, he had a moment of rare self-awareness, yeah, you yeah. know, no, but in, like... in the romantic comedy movie. Yeah, but, <laughs> he, you know, what's done is done. Like, he fucked up, you know. It's like, I mean, it's so funny because... It was because... a shitty thing to do. <laughs> One of yeah. um, one of my like I wouldn't say favorite romantic comedy tropes, but like one that I always enjoy seeing is like the journalist that sleeps with the uh, with the source, and then like article <laughs> tears him apart. Like it's such a like it's always, like um, one movie that we were kind of talking about, you know, off mic when picking the movie for this, this episode was How's the Guy in Ten Days, which is like right the perfect example of that um because it's uh, another movie about an article another movie where you know you get with the source and it tears them apart for about 10 minutes and they resolve it but it's just like you know like the like you want to see these like tropes because like they're comforting you know them and like when it's done well like with this movie or you know like even a movie that would say let's like you know 
like like again like the mad dash to like declare love like that's another trope that we see in everyone mm-hmm. and like you know of course like a movie like when harry met sally or moonstruck whatever and it's like yeah like those are like classics and like that's like those movies do these tropes like extremely well 27 dresses does it well enough that like I, at the end of this movie, I was like smiling, you know, or like when she's like, um, oh, when on the she boat jumps, the jumps from the gate yeah, like, like, onto the boat. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> it was, the moment that I saw us go in there, I was like, oh, fuck yeah, she's going to jump onto the boat, right? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh shit, she's going to give a speech into a microphone where everybody's watching like she's on stage and it's like a piece of performance art, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But then you had the added thing of, like, the bride who's like, you're famous. Like, I want, like, she's the bride being like, I want this, like, famous article lady to be in my weddings. That's going to make a great story. Like, oh, that was one of the coolest, like, like, rom-com moments in it. It's like, yeah, because that bride is the kind of is the kind of person who, like, watches every single rom-com. Right. Exactly. And loves them. (laughs) I do want to talk a little about James Marsden because, like, even Absolutely. though, like, I think this this yeah. movie, like, the the romance is more of a B plot than the A plot. Like, I really thought that he was like so charming in this movie, and like, oh. I mean, he's one. I think he's like becoming like one of my favorite actors. I've never seen him bad in anything. I don't. know. What are your thoughts on Mr. Marsden? He fucking rules. I love James Marsden. I yeah. really feel like he's the one person in this generation who, like, criminally underappreciated and criminally underused it's like he pops up every couple years every couple years in something where he's awesome and then you have to wait like another couple years for him to show up in something where he's you know not quite being used to the best of his abilities but because he's got that just like marsdenness it's like he just rules in it as a matter of course and it's like i remember saying to somebody um i think it was like after i think that the 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 two inspirations for this observation were watching an episode of the first season of Westworld and I don't remember the specific one, but some 30s screwball comedy with a madcap heiress who, you know, falls in love with a rich guy. I just I don't for the life of me remember. It happened one night? No, it wasn't it happened one night. It was um it was it, it was like it, it, it uh, a fancy Manhattan apartment was involved. It's like it could be in one of like forty five different movies. So, but oh, yeah, but maybe the awful truth or something. It was it, it was a screwball comedy from the thirties. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I just and I remember like you know talking to somebody and and it was because it was like having watched Marsden in Westworld right after this other movie. I was like. We've failed as a cinema by not making like 25 movies where James Marston is in a tuxedo in a penthouse apartment with a glass of champagne and dishing wetty repartee. That is like that would be like the peak of his powers because that just unbelievable charm, that just effortless precision of, uh, you know, like his ability with text his innate ability to adjust to whatever genre he's in and whatever the needs of the particular role are um, like that, you know, like in this, it's like he looked at these sides and he was like, Oh yeah, I got to be the charming guy who the heroine falls in love with by the end of the movie. Everything I do has to serve that end. Okay. Yeah. And it's not, you know, it's like, yeah, I mean, this is just like, this is fluff. 
but I should take its nature as fluff seriously as an artist. And he had that awareness of, uh, of the material and the talent to just essay perfectly the guy in the rom-com, you know, like yeah, he's yeah. so fucking good as the guy in the rom-com in this. Cause yeah. that's all he is. He's just the guy in the rom-com. There's no like, like his big dramatic backstory. It's like, why do you hate weddings? Like it's like one tossed off line that I thought was a joke. And then I was like, Oh wait, shit. He's actually serious. <laughs> right. Okay. Yes, so, so that's, yeah. that's the sum total of his backstory. That's the sum total of the depth of his character. It didn't matter. He was amazing. He, oh man. I could go on for like three fucking hours about how great Marston is. Yeah. I, I mean, just, I love that guy so much. Can you go away, please? I did not invite you. Well, luckily, Tess did. See, when I cover a wedding, I got to see every aspect. You know, your sister wants so many presents from so many different stores that she physically cannot register for them all herself. She's pressed for time. It's a short engagement. Good God, another one? To you, it's just another casserole dish. To Tess, it's the pot she's going to cook my mother's Christmas roast in. Oh, Tess cooks. All right, well, I'm going to cook it, but Tess will be there with George. And this isn't just another vase. The face. This is the vase that Tess will get out when George brings home flowers. Just because he felt like it. I see. And this. This is the rooster-shaped umbrella holder that will hold all of George's umbrellas. Fine. Be a jerk. All I'm saying is that this isn't just stuff. These are the things that make up a life together. No. This is the useless crap that the $70 billion a year wedding industry has convinced us all that we have to have or we won't be happy. You know what I think? I think that all your statistics and theories are just a smokescreen. Oh, really? For what? Your little secret. Whatever it is, your parents got divorced, you haven't found the right girl, you're afraid she never will. Mm-hmm. And I think you love weddings so much because you'd rather focus on other people's Kodak moments than make memories of your own. Oh, you're right. You know why? Because weddings are the perfect place to forget about being single. I think you want a wedding, not a marriage, a wedding. What is your problem? Do you have your own fancy wedding that your wife left you or something? Bingo. What? With my roommate from college, by the way. So I think you get an extra bingo for that. Oh, shit. Kevin, I'm... I'm so sorry. It was just... It was a guess. It was a good one. For someone who has no insight whatsoever into herself, you nailed me right on the head. You want to find the ugliest stuff in the store and register test for it? Let's do it. Like, one thing that I always love about James Marsden is that, like, you're right, like, he just has this, like, conviction and commitment to, like, whatever he's doing. Like, I mean, I, I, I mean I'm sure I saw him in X-Men, like, back in the day, but, like, I didn't really register that it was him, but it, I think the first movie where I was like, oh, wow, like, this guy is a guy to watch is Enchanted, where he's just, like, the dumb prince. And, like, he's so again, good he's so committed to it. And it's, like, it's so much better that, like, he's fully committing to it rather than playing it with that, like, wink or whatever. And then, like, um, yeah. of course, like, he's, like, he did 30 Rock, where he's Liz Lemon's love interest in, like, the last, I think, the last season, or last season and a half or whatever. Yeah. And, again, he's just, like, he's so cute. And, like... And it's like, <laughs> you, it's like you you don't it's not it's not even just that like he's not just resting on his like looks like he's like playing no. it like it's so weird it's like so hard to describe because it just seems so natural but like 
you know, like, everything he's doing in this movie, like, all of his little, like, you know, when he's, like, trying to court her by, like, showing up and, like, um, you know, acting like the like the journalists and stuff or like, I mean, the Benny, the jet scene is so cute. And just like, they're so like, he just has like, I I think a lot of like rom-com actors, like the guys who are in these movies, like it's, um, especially if it's like a female focus romantic comedy, like 27 dresses, it's like, he just kind of lets, he just kind of plays off Captain Heigl. Like whatever she's doing, he's like, yeah. you know, bouncing off that. And I like that to me is like so much better than like you know like Catherine Heigl I think did one of the worst movies I've ever seen The Ugly Truth with Gerard Butler, and like the two of them are just like fighting for attention and it's really awkward. I mean yeah, like if you, you have not have it, seen yeah. that movie, I re- actually recommend it because it's so bad. Because it's that bad, yeah. It's just like you just can't believe that like adults with adult sized brains made this. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, well, and it's also just so weird that Jerry Butler had that sort of rom com period yeah, in his career because, like, too, the, the things that the things that he's good at are like. Did you ever see Den of Thieves? No, but I've heard it's like surprisingly good. It, well, I mean, it's like it's the kind of thing that I would only recommend that movie to people who you know really like heist movies and watch every single heist movie and are like you yeah. know really into that like you know super butch fucking you know like testosterone dripping from the ceiling fucking movies like that. But like his like but Ger- Gerard Butler's like in that movie is like. At, at basically, like the fullest realization of what you know, like when I was talking about Marston a second ago, uh, Gerard Butler's fullest realization is in Den of Thieves as like a thirty-pound overweight, permanently hungover, taking drugs twenty-four hours a day, nasty ass motherfucker with like you know seven o'clock shadow, and it was like <laughs> um, uh, somebody uh, was saying, I don't remember who it was called him oh right it was um the the journalist uh kath krueger uh called gerard butler and den of thieves the most divorced man who's ever lived <laughs> you know which was a great fucking line that was why i wanted yeah, to make sure to attribute. Yeah. um and it's like that's what you know and then remembering that it's like he had that couple years like after p.s i love you oh, and yes i love you, you know, man what a movie that's yeah, that was that, like... that. That was my movie with somebody I was in a relationship with once. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was that yeah. was our movie. P.S. I love you. Uh, but yeah, but it's also like the whole movie. Even then, was I was just like, that's Gerard Butler. That's Leonardo. Yeah, yeah. What the like, fuck? You know, I was like, I was like, yeah, that's, it doesn't that's, quite that's, click. That's, that's, that's Olympus is fallen yeah. guy. That that's yeah. that's gamer. You know, it's like you know? yeah, yeah, right. Olympus fallen. Yeah. But it's uh, like, yeah, it, it's there's a specific skill set that you have to have to be the successful, like, you know, guy in the rom-com. And part of it is that humility and patience that Marsden has that somebody like, and, you know, not to knock Gerard Butler because he's good at the things that he's good at. Right. But there's that innate thing to him where he's sort of like, I need to be the one in control. You know, it's like he can't not be like the alpha guy. And, like, he tries to kind of tamp it down a little bit, but it's, like, it still bubbles up to the surface when he's not, like, really paying attention. And it's, like, you can't have, you can't be that kind of guy in the rom-com, which, like, you know, for all, you know, it's, like, you, you know, 
debate gender essentialism or whatever. It's like it's a woman's genre. You know, it's like we're like you and I even are tourists talking about. Yeah, I know. And and it's (laughs) like you can't as a male character serving a specific role within that milieu demand to be, you know, the heliocentric fucking, you know, like, uh, you know, lightning rod that determines the direction of things. It's like, no, you're along for the ride. The the woman heroine is the one who is controlling the thing, not you. And it's like, you know, no matter how like good looking or charming an actor is, they have to be able to not just willing, but able to take that secondary role. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, you're absolutely right that like, as, as we're talking about this and like, as I was reading about like this movie's impact with like women audience members, I was like, man, should I mm. like cancel this and like do it with a woman who actually can like attest to like what we're saying? Um, but like, I mean, maybe, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, like the thing that's great about James Marsden in this movie is that he's so non-threatening. Like I'm reading like some review of this movie saying like, oh, he's so creepy because he's like stalking her. And I was like kind of ready for that. Cause like, I mean, you know, stalking is kind of like part of the rom-com tradition, you know, as yeah. much as I, you know, as much as it, it pains me to say that it kind of is, but like watching this movie, I'm like, but there's no way he's a stalker because he's so not threatening. Like, even if he's like doing the <laughs> actions of a stalker, like no person on earth would be creeped out by him. And, like, right, I and remember, that's like, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's and, the thing is that yeah. like the reason why none of that is creepy is because he's so good. Yeah. It's not that the character isn't a stalker. I mean, that guy, he does some, he yeah, does. I mean, it's true. Like, he does take her like up shit. her day planner. That's... <laughs> but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You right? know, it doesn't matter because yeah. he's that charming. It's almost like a really impressive difficulty curve. It's almost like, all right, Mars, this guy's kind of a piece of shit. He's kind of a sociopath. He's even kind of a bad person. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to charm the shit out of everyone anyway. And he's like, mm, I accept. Accomplished. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. And um. Yeah. And I remember reading, like, when I was reading about the making of the film, like, um, uh, McKenna was saying that, like, you know, she was a writer on set, and she was like, you know, it was, it was such a, like, um, like, a lot, like, the female energy on the set was just so strong, because it was, like, a predominantly female cast, you know, with, like, Mullen Ackerman, Catherine Heigl, Judy Greer, and the, and Fletcher as the director, and then you just had, like, Ed Burns and James Marsden, who were, like, Totally, I mean, I don't know if Ed Burns has any like skeletons in his closet, but like from what I've heard, he seems like a total chill guy. And like, I guess on set they all felt really yeah. great with him around. So like, it just had this like energy, right? And like, it, it comes across in the movie. I, mean, I guess granted, maybe I read all that, so it was like on my mind while I was watching it. But I'm like, I totally feel like right. it felt like a movie they all loved making, and like they kind of knew they had something a little special on their hands. Yeah, because, I mean, that was the thing, um, the thing that kept me from getting derailed into, you know, being overly critical or overly outsided or overly anthropological because, you know, like, here I am in an unfamiliar genre studying the habits of its denizens and shit. And it's like, if I had spent too much of the movie in that mode, I would not have ended up enjoying it. And I would have just had, like, you know 
30 pages of notes about like, you know, the fucking capitalistic implications of blah, 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 you know, just like, and you'd just be sitting there going, why did I let this boring motherfucker on my goddamn podcast? You know, um, uh, but, <laughs> I mean, God. but instead, you know, it's like everybody was so charming and everybody clicked. So, uh, everybody was just like clicked so well with each other that it was just like, yeah, yeah, it was just a pleasant experience. It was just like yeah. a charming, pleasant experience watching, you know, something that it's like, you know, to call it, you know, like, you know, superficial or like, you know, insubstantial. Like that, it's kind of missing the point because it's an in the moment experience that is meant to charm you in that moment. Yeah. And it's like. Yeah, it's like if you forget everything that happens a day later, it's like it doesn't fucking matter because for those two hours, you were present in a charmed state, you know? Yeah, and this movie, I think, definitely has, like... It it definitely has, like, a kind of more, like, knowing, like, sense of humor about itself, you know, like... you know, the mo- It is very self-aware. Yeah, yeah, like, the montage of her, like, trying on the dresses, so funny, like... Each new outfit, more not like I wouldn't say they were all ridiculous because some of them were just like cultural outfits that are normal right. for you know like those cultural weddings. But like each more like I mean I guess like with her like frame and her body, they just looked ridiculous. And like um, you know, Malin Ackerman, like I think she is a pretty great performance. Like it's kind of the character that's mm. like very easy to like kind of write off the performance because it's such an hateable character. But like. I thought she did. She was so funny. Like one of my like one of my favorite bits with her is when you know she's like reading the article and like getting mad that she's being called a bridezilla while acting like Godzilla, like you know, <laughs> crashed like yeah, thrashing yeah, yeah. around the apartment, like breaking the furniture. It was so funny because it's like like you know, bridezilla is such a like misogynist term, right? Like, I mean, obviously there are like women who are very like demanding during the weddings, but like, I feel like bridezilla gets lobbied at, lobbed at any, you know, woman who asks for anything during her wedding time. But like, it's an overused term, but you've met one in your life is the thing. Yeah. Um, But I felt like with like, with them, like that, like piece of direction of her, like, being like a you know a kaiju monster <laughs> like it just like made it a little funnier yeah. and stuff and like you know just like her like airheadedness was so like um just I, I just like it was just so funny like she's like just like with um James Mars like I feel like Malin Ackerman was like really committing to it and like just like going all into it and I just I really appreciated that because it's the kind of character that's not easy to play in my opinion. Yeah, it, it it is it, it is difficult because it's like it's very easy to slip into the trap of playing it just as the one dimensional, just yeah. you know, like like negative stereotype, negative stereotype about basically like everything, you know, the monstrous feminine, you yeah. know, like the it, you know, and it's like the fact that she managed to work layers into it. You know, is I mean, she's somebody who is an underappreciated performer, I think, too. Oh, and I sure, think like yeah. and a lot of it was because, you know, she was miscast in Watchmen, but she showed up and did the job in Watchmen. You oh, know, yeah, it's like with her, right. Yeah, no, I mean, that movie sucks. But I mean, yeah. like, but, you know, she showed up and punched the clock and did the job, you know, 
And it's like, and I've been thinking like the last couple seasons of Billions. It's like, man, I miss Malin Ackerman, man. Why, why the fuck did she have to get written off the show, man? I miss her. You know? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. No, one thing that was kind of weird to me was that she's the kid's sister. And yet, in real life, she's like five months older than uh, than Catherine Heigl. Oh really? Oh wow! Yeah, and and because it, it's like because she does not look significantly younger, but a lot of the a lot of the lo- younger sisterness of the the dynamic between the two of them, like, is very effectively conveyed by just uh, Ackerman's physicality in it. Yeah, you know yeah. she's you know she's a little bubblier, she's a little femier, she's a little kind of you know like ditzier and like whatever and Heigl is like you know very serious and very responsible and very kind of you know like it's like all right you know she's the baby she's the special one you know everything's got to be about her and the fact that like the tension in their relationship kind of stemmed from that very real dynamic that you see all the time in in pairs of sisters in, in real life like was what one of the things that you know enabled the movie to you know like triumph over you know like the you know the you know the sort of like you know collateral uh, you know like kind of mistakes of you know or uh, mistakes but you know like the, the just the sort of like genre shittiness that because it's like you know you have to follow the rules and so in following the rules like you end up with just like absolutely bizarre human behavior and things that are just like appalling mm-hmm. or like things that reveal just like, you know, just shockingly cruel views of the world or whatever. But it's just like, it's not that they're endorsing that. It's just that that's just like a byproduct of solving for the equation of getting all the genre elements uh, flowing in the same direction. But the humanity of like the understanding of real world dynamics between characters and the essaying of those very real dynamics is so much of a source of, you know, like the, the, the charm of the movie and the fact that it, it you know, manages to work in spite of the fact that you're like, you know, but it's like, it still works, you know? Yeah, exactly. I know, that was a lot of ramble. I'm sorry. No, I mean, I definitely, <laughs> it's, I think you're absolutely on the nose there. Um, and, uh, I mean, did, did you want to talk about sort of, like, the wedding industry portrayed in this movie? Because I, I did find it kind of interesting because, like, this movie probably shows up in a lot of, like, best wedding movies and probably, like, mm-hmm. is the movies that a lot of bachelor, that a lot of bridal parties watch. But I actually found it to be quite critical of the wedding industry um, and the excess of it, you know? Yeah, and yeah, because it, I mean, the thing is that like the wedding that they're planning is this like really supposed to be extravagant, lavish. It's and, insane. Like, but then at the end of the day, yeah. like that wedding doesn't happen, and the wedding at the end of the movie is very like I mean, it's still on the beach, you know. So I'm sure it cost a lot, but like it seemed very minimalist compared to you well, know. And it's also like, the organicness of the setting. Yeah. <laughs> managed to convey that it's like yeah this is the real shit with your priorities in order because it's it's at the beach it's next to the ocean it's connected to the earth it isn't like this mountain of artifice that the wedding from hell that they're planning was basically turning into it's just like a monument to just like materialistic decadence and And then by contrast you know the wedding the way that it should be is very like 
of the earth. It's the connection between earth and the, you know, like land and the ocean. And yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, even like the, in the opening scene of her, like juggling those two weddings or actually the opening scene is with, it's her as a kid, but like the, you know, the scene with her juggling the, the two weddings, like, I mean, it really shows like a lot of work goes into these weddings, and it's it's often mm-hmm. a woman or women who have to do all that stuff. Oh yeah, and like, um, and like, I mean, like a lot of how much like wedding planning just like naturally falls to women, even though like it's technically two people's. I mean, you know, being like heteronormative here, but like it's technically a man and a woman's wedding most of the time. But like, you know, sure. these straight weddings, like. Um, it always kind of falls onto like the bride and the bridal party to do all this stuff. And that's something that I've seen in like real life too, where like I've been a groomsman at a wedding and I've like did nothing that whole day until the wedding started. And then like, but then I found out from like my female, like my woman friends that they like have been like up since like 5am and like doing this and that all day and getting this and that ready. And I'm like, wow, like, I could have helped, but like no one asked me. So like, yeah, because it's, it's partially it's like yeah. people just adhering to tradition. Yeah, exactly. And part of it is like the the you know in hetero marriages, you know, like the guys like, oh, well, I don't gotta do nothing. I'm the guy. Yeah, I can just coast. I don't right. gotta do yeah. shit. All I gotta do is show up for my bachelor party. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're great help. You're great uh, help, Chad. <laughs> you know, it's like, and even you know. like planning the bachelor party, like my my friend's wedding, I was just like, wow, like. It's such so easy to plan. Like we're just like getting a house and going golfing. Um, well, but yeah, I mean, it's just funny. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just saying. It's just funny that like, you know, I, I you know, like um, you're saying how like you know you could kind of critique this movie as like you know in that capital sense, and I'm thinking, yeah, but like, I guess that, yeah, technically like it does fall into that because like it's studio movie. You know, it's very expensive looking, whatever. But like. I think it's trying to be a little bit more critiquing of like the wedding industrial, comp, you know, industry. Well, yeah, industry. Exactly. yeah, yeah. The phrase "wedding industrial complex" did pop yeah. in my mind when I was watching the movie because, yeah, you're right. It's like that degree, that the degree to which its perspective on that whole thing is is slightly critical is crucial in this movie. Like you know, being. Uh, you know, like, you know, you're able to overlook the, you know, like the occasional, like, I don't know, ideological misstep or whatever, you know, right. because it's like, because it is like, no, we're not swallowing this thing whole and like totally accepting. It's like, yeah, this is like ridiculous and fucked up in a lot of ways. Um, but it's also the fact that it isn't just critical. The fact that it also it's like, but some of this stuff is actually kind of nice, like the pretty dresses and the love and the, you know, <laughs> like the crying with joy and the food and everything, you know. You know, yeah. it's like it, it, it's it's balanced, you know, but the thing that with the first big surprise in the movie to me was that when she was, you know, shuttling between the two weddings in in the cab, I was like, oh, yeah, this is what she does for a living. You know, she she, you know, the whole prologue about like, you know, falling in love with weddings as an eight year old and then fast forwarding to the present day where she's like shuttling back and forth between the two weddings. I just like default assumed, oh, yeah, she's a wedding planner as her job. This is how she earns her money. She gets a a, a, hel- a hefty fee for providing these services. Right. Yeah. And then, no, this is just her side gig that she does. While she's some fucking, you know, like meatballs, uh, personal assistant, 
Yeah. You know, yeah. and it's like that level of abnegation was just sort of like, fuck, man. That's like, like I was bummed out when I was like, you mean she's not getting $50,000 a wedding as her job? Like, no. I mean, <laughs> You know, I getting some like token, like bridesmaids gift, right? To like do all this oh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, but I mean, that that's a thing. Like, I mean, I have, you know, like I have so many relatives of mine and like friends who are just like bridesmaids and so many weddings. And you just like, you just like do the work, you pay the money for the dress and the hotel and the gift, whatever, and the showers and stuff. You just do it because like you, I mean, technically you, anyone can say no to anything, but like, you can say no. Like, if someone's asking you to be their maid of honor, like, you really have to have a good reason to say no. And, like, I mean, yeah. the thing is that, like, there's that scene after she tries on the dresses, right, which I found to be really, you know, sweet and interesting scene about, you know, her interior life when she's like, you know, if I do this for all, all these girls in my life, then eventually they'll return the favor for me. And in some ways, you're thinking, like, no, they're not, because, like, they're all living their lives now, and they probably, like, they're probably over weddings since they've had theirs, <laughs> and they don't want to be I a bridesmaid know. again. But on the other hand, you can't, you can't judge her too much for thinking that, because, like, technically, like, that's the way the universe is supposed to work, right? Like, you give of yourself so you can receive. Unfortunately, right. that's not how the universe works. But then, like, the movie does have that hilarious payoff at the end when you see all those all those brides <laughs> in, the, you know, all the different uh, bridal guys, the bridesmaids' dresses. And that was such was an so, effective way of conveying, yeah. like, this, the, just the series of favors that she called in. Yeah. You know, it's like, right. it's like, <laughs> someday, not that may never come, I'm going to ask you to do a service for me. You know, it's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> exactly um and uh yeah one other thing i wanted to mention oh yeah like i kind of like that she like um this is a minor but like you know when when they're at the um the cake shop and she's kind of negotiating with the like cake like the baker i was like kind of like that like it's not just that she's like you know some like doormat who just does whatever she does like she does have some like skill in like negotiating and making contacts so like she does, like, have some sort of, like, fulfillment from it because, like, you know, she's, like, building, like, a network for herself. But, like, yeah, yeah I just thought that was an interesting touch. You know, she's not, like, she does have, like, she does bring something to this, you know, to all these weddings that she goes to and is planning. But, yeah. yeah and I it mean, was, yeah. it was it was a good touch in the sense that it's, like, like yeah, you see her not being a total doormat. But then you realize that the reason why she was able to do that is because she wasn't doing it for herself. She was doing yeah. it for somebody else. And it's like it's yeah. another layer of that, like, just kind of just like the immense weight of that abnegation and that, you know, sort of like, you know, deferring her own desires to those of someone else. And how she was able to pursue other people's desires with the ferocity that most people employ in pursuing their own desires. And it's like, you know, that would actually as a setup for the dramatic payoff of her finally learning to, you know, like live for herself and answer her own and look after herself for once like provided like a very effective dramatic lever 
to really give the conclusion of the movie like a, a degree of you know like make it all the more satisfying it's because you see where she started and where she ended up and you're like so happy that it's like oh yeah she's fine you know because you know people are always like oh you know don't be selfish you know criticizing other people for being selfish but this is like the rare circumstance where you're like yes be more selfish good you know it's like yeah, one of my favorite yeah. character types in romantic comedies is like this kind of thing where it's like, you know, when someone ever like when the whole like arc of the movie is like, you take care of everyone, now let me take care of you. <laughs> like, you know right. what I mean? Like that kind of character type is so. It's, I like to watch that because it's it it makes me feel really good. You know, it has like you know, seeing like a good person get their reward is always very satisfying to me. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Fair um, so, do you have any uh, final thoughts on the movie um, or anything? Favorite moments, scenes, lines you want to bring up? Uh, oh yes, there was one thing. Yeah, um, it, it, it's it's about sort of like the movie's understanding of geography and about non places that are not New York. <laughs> um, uh, the, the, when they go upstate to Rhinebeck, New York. And they're confronted with a hick town where just these rubes are like hanging out at this, you know, like low rent beer bar. And the most exciting thing that anybody can remember in the town or forever is two drunk city people singing Benny and the Jets while standing on the bar. Uh, the reality of Rhinebeck, New York is radically different from that you know because it was about like a 10 minute drive from where i went to college and rhinebeck was where like our parents would take us out for like a fancy meal because it's this (laughs) it's this town that's full of like you know affluent uh like white collar liberals who drink like you know chilled red wine and talk about how interesting this thing that they heard on NPR or read in the New York Times was and you know it's like they you know like they donate very generously to the arts and there's a great art house cinema in town a lot of great restaurants it's basically it's like a town full of people like like uh, it's a town full of Robert Redford characters. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and so it's so fucking funny to see them. Now, the thing is, there are towns in that area where you go and it's like, you know, a bunch of, you know, it's like NASCAR beer bar type, you know, people. And they're like, those towns are like five minutes away. So it's just so hilarious that they picked Rhinebeck when it's like there are like five towns within like a 10 minute drive (laughs) that are actually the way that they were. But on the other hand, on like a wedding related errand, you would be going to Rhinebeck because like Rhinebeck is one of the places upstate New York where like rich people have like destination weddings. Yeah, yeah. And like the the town Rhine Cliff, which is like direct, like thinking borders Rhinebeck directly. It's like what's between Rhinebeck and the Hudson River. And the reason why both of those towns are you know, like with the prefix Rhine is because the Hudson River looks like the fucking Rhine at that part of the thing. It's mm. gorgeous. It's like hundreds of years of European folktales gorgeous, like that part of the river at that point. 
Um, but anyway, that's just like, you know, like, you know, insider information, which is like, oh, I happen to, you know, know yeah, that. Yeah, because like, I definitely did not catch that at all. I believed everything they said. <laughs> that's so funny. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah. No, it, it, but, you know, because it's one of those things it's like, it, it's like, and you as the possessor of that insider knowledge cannot allow that to derail the movie for you because it's just like okay whatever they picked a name out of a hat you know like the writer looked at a map and was like oh okay yeah that's right around okay uh, i like the i like the way that word sounds sure yeah, yeah. That, you know uh but the other thing that was funny is uh, a friend of mine was pointing out on twitter earlier today um, oh yeah i saw with, this yeah 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 which with, with sean burns pointing out that it's like half the movie is fucking blatantly providence you know while yeah. being set in new york and it's like, yeah, like him recognizing like the one scene that just literally just writes out of, outside of RISD. Now, that is even more like rarefied. You know, you can't let it bother you because it's like you got to shoot the movie somewhere. It costs a million dollars a second to film in New York yeah. City. I get that you have a couple of scenes where it's like, OK, a couple establishing shots that are obviously New York to paper over the fact that the rest of the movie like totally isn't. But it's sort of like. We will still notice, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, yeah, I mean, a lot of New York romantic comedies like are very much like set in New York in the sense that like you kind of have a sense of like where they are in the city. But in this movie, I felt like totally like a nondescript city. Like I could tell it it was New York because, you know what I mean? They didn't really set like, I mean, as much as I hate this phrase, but like New York was not a character in this movie. (laughs) You know? No, but I mean, it's it's again, and it's like New York is not the sum total of the universe, which right. is something that when I lived there, I would have been shocked to hear those words yeah. come out of my mouth. But I mean, it is true, you know, um, and th- it's just it's like it's sort of like setting it in New York, setting a romantic comedy in New York City just lends it like it just an air of kind of totemic glamour yeah you know it's like it's just a little bit more glamorous if it's in new york and you know like if it's set in france it's like yeah i mean you know it could take place in you know like bordeaux or lille or you know or nice or something like that but really if it's a romantic movie and you're not setting it in paris you're fucking up you know it's like yeah there's just certain places where you kind of, you know, and I don't know. I mean, I guess it's sort of like, you know, in Bollywood, the equivalent, it's like, yeah, it's got to be in Mumbai. I mean, right, come on. Right. It's the center of Bollywood. I mean, come on. We got to, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just not the same if it's in it's Delhi. Come on, man. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess it's like, and, you know, the L.A. romantic comedy is its own, you know, beast. And it's like, uh, I, I don't um you know, probably, you know, warranting like, you know, serious study of its specific thing, because so much of like L.A. romantic comedies are about, you know, like car culture and being a transplant because, you know, nobody's from there, quote unquote, you know, editorially, you know, and and there's all the preoccupations that L.A. romantic comedies have that New York ones tend to just be like sort of in awe of the city itself Whereas L.A. ones get kind of self-defensive about, you know, like, well, yeah, I mean, of course, L.A. romantic comedy is just as good as New York one. Yeah, yeah you know, and, there, yeah. and there's all that. I mean, we're just getting down to, you know, irrelevant little, you know, kind of ephemera about, you know, no, the thing. here. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of like what else I wanted to bring up. Um, I did kind of like the resolution of the love triangle. I, I don't think we mentioned the fact that a lot of the conflict of this movie is that Catherine Heigl's character is in love with Ed Burns while he's... Which is know, the best running joke in the whole movie because he is such a, just like a nothing meatball in it. Yeah, not yeah. This isn't knocking him as an actor. The character yeah. is just a, a non-entity. The character is a fluffball. The fact that yeah. she's so in love with him, like Judy Greer, it like gets off so many great singers about how oh, dumb yeah. it is that yeah, she's yeah. that in love with, you know. Um, but I kind of like that. Like for one thing, like after rehearsal dinner, like they, they don't resolve that really, the the tension in the Malin Ackerman Ed, Ed Burns uh, relationship very easily at all. And then like you know they have that scene when she quits and like they kind of kiss and it's like bad, which I thought was kind of fun. Yeah, and then and, they tried again, which was really charming. You know, it's yeah. sort of like because they both knew it's like no, something's not. But you are hot, so we should kind of yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and then they're both like, nah, nah. And that actually was like this really lovely moment between two people, like him finally seeing. Like it took her quitting the job for him to see her as a human being rather than as like a function of his will. You know, which is yeah, one of the reasons yeah. why I was like so like kind of blah about him as a character. So he was such a, a business guy. It's like, oh, yeah, my assistant moves heaven and earth for me. And I just like drift Don't blissfully through the day with my dog. Yeah. And I mean, my, that's the other thing. Like, that's know, another yeah. like angle of this movie that I think actually um, works really well and surprisingly is given some kind of like depth, which is that like. Yeah, she's like I mean, I like we mentioned earlier that like this movie's a lot about sort of like the like invisible emotional labor that like women have to do. <laughs> and like I feel like this movie actually gave time for him to like reckon with the fact that like he basically treated this like human being who's educated and professional and competent and capable as this like a lapdog essentially or like a you know, a servant or a butler or something. And like when she when like I love that the final straw is that like he asks her to like print something for him and she's like no then you know she's like no like I'm here as your date like yeah yeah it's not my it's like it technically is my job but it's like not my job like nothing that he can't do himself and he's like I I think he says like I can't figure out the printer or something and I, I I just love that like the their their relationship gets some kind of closure. You know, and it's not just that, like, it's also not, like, a big blow-up. It's just, like, she quits because she realizes how invisible she really is to him. So, yeah, yeah, and it's, like, and and it's it's resolved, and the, you know, like, the problematic, you know, element of, like, him just being this clueless dipshit and her doing literally everything for him. It's, like, all, all of the loose ends of that dynamic are solved the moment that she quits the job, and he just sort of, like, jolts awake, sees her as the, you know, like, as, the, as, as a human being for the first time, and it's, like, yeah, like you're saying, like, the recognition of the amount of emotional and physical labor that certain types of women are expected to perform, because, like, you see even other women benefiting from all the labor that Heigl is doing on their behalf that they don't want to do. Right. Like, you know, um, Kristen Ritter's engagement party. And which I thought was, I thought the Kristen Ritter's um, goth wedding was pretty cool. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> With like the S&M it, was so, it was so fun seeing her in the movie for five seconds because yeah. she hadn't like had her come up yet. 
but yeah. it was like, you know, it, you know, and so it's like, oh, yeah, Kristen Ritter's in this movie for like five seconds because she's not Kristen Ritter yet. You know, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think this is like right before she does like Don't Trust the Bitch in Apartment 23, which I think yeah, is yeah, the yeah. first time I saw her anything. Um, Breaking Bad was the first thing I ever saw. Oh, yeah, yeah. I I really think that like I know this movie kind of gets a bad rap, but I really think that people like actually like watched it with an open mind. They would take a lot away from it because I thought it was very like maybe not like and it's not going to be one of my favorite romantic comedies, but definitely like one that I would you know happily watch again in a couple of years when I when I come across it. Yeah, I mean I don't know if I'm ever going to watch this one again. The one time through was very pleasurable like it was because the thing is like you say it's not the greatest romantic comedy in the world but it's a great example of when you understand exactly the type of movie that you're trying to make and you execute it you know in both effectively and in you know with certain elements of the execution that are, you know, kind of novel in certain ways. I mean, I don't know if that's too much vague, but like, you know, the fact that like, you know, it's a woman writer who understands women, you know, it's like, it's a, you know, like a woman director who understands, you know, like, uh, you know, and it's a script that, allows everybody their humanity like you know the, the the airhead boss could easily be a villain but he's a human being again the moment that like he sees her and he's because he's a bit you know kind of bashed when he realizes oh fuck i fucked this up so badly i did not realize what and i he had could have easily here. been let off the hook right like they couldn't he could have either been let scene. off the hook yeah, yeah he either could have been let off the hook or completely villainized right and neither one is a, like a really dramatically satisfying option. Just letting him be a human being who learned a thing here. And maybe he won't make the same mistake again. You know, it's right. like it's a hu- it's a human scale thing. It's not like, you know, shooting for the moon in terms of like, oh, this completely overhauled, revolutionized his entire life or it completely ended his life as he knows it. You know, and even the, um, you know, like the the called off wedding, you know, it's like it didn't ruin Madeline Ackerman's life either. And in that last scene at at Heigl's wedding, when they're like, you know, reintroduced, you almost get the feeling that they're going to see each other again and that they they're finally the way that scene's written, you know, acknowledges it's like this is the first time we're really meeting as people yeah, rather yeah. than as an idea of the other person. And just to tie it all, tie all of that back into the thing, it's like the most the, the, the best asset that this movie has at its disposal is it's, you know, adamant insistence on seeing characters, humanities, even if like their sole narrative purpose is as like a romantic comedy trope, even those trope characters are regarded and uh, regarded as humans as fully human and given, you know, maybe brief moments to display that full humanity, but they are allowed that. And within the strictures of, you know, like the, you know, like the requirements 
of the genre, the sacrifices that it demands. Managing to pull that off is quite an achievement, so it's noteworthy for that. And it's definitely the kind of thing, I mean, if at this point there's anybody who's into romantic comedies who hasn't seen it yet, it's definitely one that if this is your genre, you really got, this is one to check out because it's Mm -hmm. like, it is the thing and it's the thing done well. Right. Yeah. And that's a great place to end. Uh, Danny, where can people find you online? Uh, while we're quarantined and I don't really have any of my uh, big irons in the fire, you can find me at Twitter at at by Bose, B-Y-B-O-W-E-S. Um, uh, but, you know, for the moment, I'm like not really up to much, just like everybody else. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> I know. But um, I am uh, trying my best to be a light rather than uh, just a source of uh, uh, anxiety and, uh, and and dread. So, you know, it's like I'm doing the one thing that I can do, which is, you know, put the occasional smile on somebody's face, put the occasional thought in somebody's head. So that's where you can find me doing that. Great. And you can find me on Twitter at TheManish89 and follow the podcast at It Hot To Be You. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe so we can help people find this show. Danny, thank you so much for doing this. I had such a great time chatting about this movie and I'm glad that you I'm glad that we, you know, we decided on it because like it was fun to revisit it and talk about. It was fun to revisit for the first time and man, yeah, really thank you for having me on the pod. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this chat. And listeners, thanks for listening. Please stay safe out there and remember to you know, donate what you can and you know, support all the... Uh, protest and you know activism that's going on right now thanks for listening bye